Welcome to Afterlives with Kara Cooney, in which we discuss ancient Egyptian history and relevant current events that we think will be of interest to our audience. I am Kara Cooney, and I'm a professor of Egyptology at UCLA. This podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at UCLA. In recent years, I've become active in communicating with the general public about the history of ancient Egypt through lectures, interviews, social media, books, and guest appearances. This podcast is my opportunity to take the kinds of deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. Hello, all. Hey, Jordan, how are you doing? Good, good. How's everything going? You know, my son started wearing eyeliner. He's going through the, the emo phase. It's, he doesn't know how to put it on, so it's very, very thick. And I'm sure he probably wouldn't respond well to you being, let me help you. I, I tried. Yeah. Um, but he's, he's very intense, so I'm letting him have this moment. I'm supporting this yeah. this shift. It's good. It's, it's this little rocker. But we were talking about Halloween costumes before you, you came out. And you were like, he was like, well, like, my everyday outfit is kind of like a Halloween costume. And I was like, well, you, we were like, you could go as the Auntie Julian and dress really preppy with, like, a button-up and a tie. And that could be your Halloween. He was like... Oh, yeah. It's scary. So, For him, that's mm-hmm. one of the most frightening things you could possibly really, be. Could go as the anti. With chinos and like a yes. button down shirt. Like I think he would like. Like a po- collar, like he would golf die. shirt or something. A, a golf shirt. One of those super silky with, like, ones that shows shoes. the man boobs. <laughs> yes. Oh, or like no. And like boat shoes or something. No, that would be awful. Would be a good Halloween costume. Oh, my God. Yeah, I was talking about Halloween. I'm like, what do you mm-hmm. want to be for Halloween? He's like, I think that my regular look. That's what work. he was. And I was like, yeah, you could do that. Yeah. But so maybe we'll see if he's the anti. Preppy one. Oh, he's only, he's so young to be an adolescent, but you know, everyone take courage. We, we, we do what we need to do. It's fun experiencing it through you. Yeah. Oh, I'll provide the birth control. Yeah. Uh, for, for all the grad students mm-hmm. at UCLA who, who are exposed to my child and go, oh my God, I'm not doing that. <laughs> Especially, I feel like the teenage years are it's, yeah, it's really, always the roughest. It's intense, so it's intense. Well, we're going to be speaking about even rougher situations today. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, today, we're going to be covering the Bronze Age collapse. Yeah. So this is a one of our book giveaway winners' uh, suggestions. So yeah. we're going through those suggestions. So thank you, and obviously, feel free to send us more suggestions. Um, yeah. Maybe wait know. until there's another contest so you can yeah. get free we'll stuff doing, like a signed book. So. Doing another contest soon at some point. Anyway. Um, okay. So Egypt and the Bronze Age collapse. Yeah. Super hot topic, I think. Yeah. In, I mean, since forever, it's always yeah. a hot topic, I feel like. Well, like, just one example. Eric Klein's mm-hmm. book, what is 1177. it, 1177? Is that 1177 BC, and he's the now year writing civilization 11, collapsed? He's now writing 1178. <clears throat> or Oh, the year after. Yes. It's like the day after. Yes. After um, tomorrow, but that book blew up. That book became, I think, a New York Times bestseller. Mm-hmm. It was, it was a big deal, and there, it's obviously a zeitgeist thing that people want to know what collapse is, how it works, how big collapses, supra regional collapses work, um, and what we can potentially be prepared for. Um, yeah. It's on people's minds. Yeah, I have that question kind of to wrap things up at the end about yeah. why people care and are so interested but yeah it makes sense for sure um so first i think let's get situated situate the listeners watchers in space time yeah so um what's happening so we're going to focus on egypt because obviously that's our specialty um but this bronze age collapse is collapse is affecting 
the wider Mediterranean, North Africa, Near East, even into Southern Europe, you could even yeah. say. Yeah. Um, but we're going to be focusing in on Egypt because that's what we know and, yeah. um, you know, provide as much details as we can. So what's happening in Egypt prior to this Bronze Age collapse? <clears throat> Give us a little context about what's what this time is. Yeah, so I would situate it within the 12th century mm -hmm. BCE. Um, but these things take time to to foment, to ferment, to, mm -hmm. to, to come to fruition. And then the aftermath takes time too. So one could argue that things are already underway in the late 18th dynasty, maybe, mm -hmm. right? Maybe geographically, maybe with the movement of some larger migration groups, the beginnings of those migrations yeah. could be visible in the 18th dynasty. Yeah, and so then, you start seeing like, some see of the peoples, pop up in Marna letters. Yeah, and so. some of the Libyan groups show yeah. up, like the Meshwesh and the mm -hmm. Libu show up in the 18th dynasty, which yeah. means, because they're probably not indigenous Libyan, they probably are coming from someplace else in the Mediterranean, field, yeah. which means that those migrations started 18th dynasty-ish. Um, and we're talking about migrations of tens of thousands of people yeah. in the Mediterranean region and in nor the North African and West Asian space. So it's it's a big reorganization of peoples and and a reorganization of polities and states. Mm -hmm. so, so in time, that's where we're going to be yep. mid 12th century as like the epicenter of the worst parts yeah. and like the peak of it. But kingdom. before and after it's, you know, you, it's a nice 300, 400 year mm -hmm. spread spread if you like, I, I think so. And then in space, um, how far did this bronze age collapse extend? We focus on Egypt. So, you know, obviously the migrations are coming from the Northeastern Mediterranean from yeah. Those are where, where the sea peoples are mainly coming from and where those migrations are heading out from. So some sort of horrible shit is going down in Europe um, at this time. But West Asia is suffering too. Mm -hmm. And well, then how... They, yeah. Because they kind of sweep through. Exactly. Because they or do sweep around through. the Mediterranean. Yeah. It's yeah. complicated. But then how far into North Africa this gets? Like how far to the West? West yeah. I don't think we know. Mm -hmm. um, how far down South it goes? We could discuss um, modern-day Sudanese or sorry, Sudanese, according, modern day, I say, according to the um, geopolitical maps, but how far south it goes is to be discussed and then how far east it goes. Yeah. Um, it's, we don't know the answers to these questions. And I would argue, and you, you can tell me what you see, but it, it seems like historians have been very, very interested in time periods of security and mm -hmm. building and classical time periods and less interested in the so-called intermediate periods or time period of crisis when not as much is built, there's not as much history. And that's that's switching up. It's very much mm -hmm. within the academic zeitgeist yeah. to study these time Opposite. periods of yeah. intermediacy, liminal time periods, mm -hmm. collapse. And because it's become so sexy, now people are really digging in and yeah. we're getting answers that we hadn't had previously. So it's, it's an interesting time to be an academic. And of course I work on this stuff. Yeah. Um, you less so, but mm -hmm. it's still, you're working New Kingdom yeah, so and you're working in the New Kingdom through time. Yeah. So you're going to see it. it will yeah. And it's going to hit fashion. These kinds of collapses oh, hit yeah. fashion. Yeah, you see, you know, yeah. Libyan and other Near Eastern types of garments come, mm -hmm. you know, become more popular and then they, you know, what allows them to then become shown to. And the thing I like with your work is that because so much collapse deals with human-induced collapse, mm -hmm. and we all know the kinds of debates that are happening in the world about this, but I like following it economically because then you can think of 
the the kinds of fashion that's over the top in terms mm -hmm. of conspicuous consumption because before the collapse they're enveloping themselves the egyptians well you tell me what the garments are like so layers and layers of, of flounces and wraps and um just you know yards and yards of linen white you know really nice give me a european linen. comparison for that I, i'm thinking like you know louis the 14th's court of justice absolutely over, and up to Louis XVI, yeah. right? Who gets his head cut yeah, off? Like overt conspicuous consumption. Dresses like so wide. Wigs. Dresses so wide. You need French doors yeah. to get through you know, them. Huge wigs, lots of jewelry, just you know, yards and yards of fabric into yeah. these into these garments. Even, you know, fringe just gets crazy too at the end. And that kind of consumption has a cost, right? It has a cost in taking those materials away from other people and hoarding those materials and overworking people to make those materials and exploiting them. Mm -hmm. um, maybe even for some of the materials causing environmental devastation that has long-term repercussions. Yeah, oh, sure. So it's important to, to think of what the intensification for elite consumption means. And, and then the anger that builds in society when they see that consumption mm -hmm. um, can often explode. And one could link those two together, that this Bronze Age collapse in Egypt with all these flounces and outfits and big wigs and fancy Very stuff small. started in Amenhotep III's time. Oh, yeah. And then extends until the 20th dynasty when they're just building. And it was working for a while. And then yes. it hits a tipping point where it's too much. And yeah. then it just... And it all falls apart. Come. So it's, um, when it's we interesting. Were just, we were just at the Holbein exhibit at the Getty. And yeah. he does such a great job of... Hans Holbein. Hans Holbein of the Portrait, court. portrait painter. Um, such a great job of capturing everyone's clothing and garments and just like the Spitz lace and the... And just like yeah. the fur hats. You yeah. can see, you can tell it's fur and like wearing like a little silk and just these opulent, ridiculously like embroidered and silken and again, this conspicuous consumption. And not long after the Tudor court, we have a king whose head gets chopped off again. And yeah, there's a little... <laughs> and what do we have for Egypt? You know, Ramses III who gets his throat cut and really his head is almost chopped off. That cut is so deep, it goes all the way to the backbone. He, he lost his toe. His toe got chopped off. And his off. toe got chopped off. So it's it's funny, you have this Baroque excess of costuming right the of the elites right before yeah. the fall and before something is overturned. Um, and w and before the elites start to eat each other alive mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So even fashion yeah. <laughs> can come into play, which I think is, sure. is interesting. So, so going back to Bronze Age, just to give people some context. So Bronze Age, when we say Bronze Age collapse, mm -hmm. we mean the very end of the Bronze Age before it would then become Iron Age. Mm -hmm. um, and these are, of course, imposed by modern yes. historians. Yeah. Um, yeah, traditionally based off the metals being used, but obviously that's not, you know, it is, the yeah, rule. Yeah, it's it's pretty um, soft, these different divisions, but there is more iron in the Iron Age, and yes. there's a hell of a lot more bronze in the Bronze Age, yeah. more stone in the Stone Age, <laughs> and so there's a reason. Mm -hmm. And and that's also a reason why it's, it's conditional based on the geography, that yes. the Stone Age in Britain is different from the Stone Age in Egypt, for yes. example. Or Bronze Age and stuff yes. like that, too. Yeah. So when we say collapse and we have this marked difference between the Bronze Age into the early Iron Age, we term it as a collapse yeah. because of what's happening around the you know yeah. Eastern Mediterranean, especially. Okay, so around the Eastern Mediterranean, all of these... So if you're an archaeologist working in different sites of the Eastern Mediterranean, you might often find burn layers mm -hmm. in your site. You'll find destruction yeah, so layers. so you have sites 
falling out of use, either yeah, sites abandoned, abandoned, completely abandoned, destroyed. Yeah, and you'll see a palace destroyed, mm -hmm. like um, Mycenae is destroyed, mm -hmm. and before that, the Minoan Palace of Knossos yeah. is yeah. destroyed. And so there's a lot of destruction in the archaeological yeah. record. That, and there's also indications in the texts that are preserved, particularly in Egypt, mm -hmm. that show that certain polities are being overturned completely yes. and replaced by something that is much less sophisticated, less textual. Um, well, yeah, in Greece we have the Dark Ages after the So-called Dark right? Ages. That's a typical thing to apply to this period. Which is very much pushed back against, but yeah. we have you know, lots of no more texts right. for a certain amount of time. And then right. pop, you know, writing pops back up. So we see... Like, who's fallen? So we have the Minoans that Hittites. fall, the Mycenaeans fall, Hittites, Hittites fall, fall, Ugarit falls. Yeah, Ugarit. Ugarit is like the main case-type city because it's like, it definitely gets destroyed. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of texts found, right, you know, in really good preserved layers that show yeah. you people Hittite being too. like, Hattushash. Yeah, Hattushash Hattushash has things in yes. the kiln to be baked yep. to preserve the text. Yep. That are like, please come and help us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the fire baked the exactly yeah. the fire of destruction baked so the text for archaeologists the, to find. You know, Syria, Syria, Levantine, uh -huh. little city states along that line. Yeah, um, and then the reestablishment of new places after. Yeah, and it, so and and sometimes during because it's mm -hmm. a long process, are right? Running from one place to another. Yeah, yeah. And and then the other thing that you see with the Bronze Age collapse is new people showing up that you never saw before with new names. Mm -hmm. Now, this is real. The Egyptian sources are what we have yeah. for this. But there's also new languages and, and other things that, that are popping up that, that are in association with this transition. Yes. So, and it's hard to know if the names that we associate with certain places are associated with where these people came from or where they settled. And After, here, yes. Here's like, one example. Like, well, give me... What you for example, yeah, the Sheridan, yeah. which and what do they say they uh, came from? from Sardinia, or, but it's more Sheridan, Sheridan, Sardinia. Yeah. yeah, so yes, did the Sheridan come from Sardinia and then invade the, the was, other places yeah. in the Mediterranean, or did they come from Europe farther north in and then settle in Sardinia, become known for that place, and then make or the Pelisset. Palestine associated with Palestine. Yeah. Did they come from Europe and then settle in the Palestinian Levantine coast? That's probably more well, likely. Just, and I would say the Sheridan is the same. They did that DNA study of the Philistines. Highly which abused and and yes. overanalyzed and problematic study. But you want to go ahead and well, put that together? Well, their result was that they came from... And who's the Palestinian people? The modern Palestinian people's genetics were analyzed. Mm -hmm. And they found... That they were foreign Greek. Yeah. You know, that they, that they have a... Yeah, genetic non strand that local. goes back to around this 13th yeah. century BCE time period. We're not local to that place and came in from someplace else. So obviously, highly ADNA studies, which I think... Um, well, tell me how it was abused. Well, I mean, and then you have the, oh, in modern-day Israel, obviously, you know, a lot of arguments between Israelis and Palestinians about whose land it is. And then so now you say, oh, Palestinians aren't originally from this location, then it gives extra credence to a more Israeli perspective of and there's, which land it is. there's state-supported, quote-unquote, biblical archaeology yeah. that finds things in Jerusalem and other places that make claims to who is older and who yeah, was there who's first. Older and who's there first, exactly. And Benjamin Netanyahu himself used that DNA study to, to say that the Palestinians were newcomers to the land and shouldn't be there. Mind you, we're talking about the 13th century Thousands BCE. And even so, 
you know, when we talk about, for example, the United States, and I write about this a lot on my Facebook page and, and make people very upset when I talk about the white colonialist newcomers to the new world, to, to North America. And they're like, what do you what do you want us to do? Go back? And I'm like, no, I'm not saying that we can happened. go back. Acknowledge what happened. How? What can we make do right. to, to remediate <laughs> yeah. the situation, to understand that we came here second and what can we do about it? That doesn't mean you can make separations in a Hitlerian fashion and mm -hmm. send certain people here and certain yeah. people there. That's not what we're talking about. Can't and erase the past. We have no. to deal with what happened. And, and so when when that DNA is abused by nationalist factions of the Israeli government to say that the Palestinians don't even deserve to be on the land where their ancestors have been for generation yeah. upon generation since the 13th century BCE, it's highly problematic. Yes. So please understand that DNA studies are misused and abused be right critical. and left, right and left. Very critical. Especially Hugely problematic. Like that one DNA for Egypt, it's like, oh, yeah. they tested three people. <laughs> Oh, so there's another DNA study, and you guys can Google Max this. Max Planck, too. Yes, from, that went to the Max Planck Institute. And the only reason they tested these mummies is because they had them on hand. And it was a set of mummies from Abu Sir al-Melek, right? Yeah, they were all northern. And they and said... And spanned, like, 3,000 years of history. There was, like, one old, really old one, yeah. one New Kingdom one, and then one, like, later Ptolemaic one. And so it's a place around the Fayum. Like near modern-day Cairo. Yeah, a little south. Mm -hmm. And they tested these mummies and said, oh, the ancient Egyptians uh, were not really yeah. North African or African. Instead, they were West Asian mm -hmm. and created this narrative that feeds into some nationalist ideology of the modern Egyptian state of, of wanting to disassociate from Africa and its blackness and wanting to associate with West Asia and its uh, lighter skin color and colonialist powers and other things. Super complicated and a highly abused study. So yeah. watch out for that one too, because it's thrown around right it's and left. Even. There's a few bodies that are assigned to the entire yeah. genome of the modern Egyptian people. If you Egyptian know anything people. about statistics, three samples are not good enough. And if you're interested in, since we've made this <laughs> yes. detour into genetics, which is fine, Google, um, there's a, there was a National Geographic study that used the modern Egyptian genome sequence mm -hmm. and established that they were of North Africa and this was millennia old and they're a North African genotype that's connected, more connected to Libya than it is to uh, West Asia. Mm -hmm. So just understand that Egypt is on the crossroads of many places, on the crossroads of the European Mediterranean world, West Asian world, um, and the African world. And you're not going to get away from that. There is always going to be mixing, but their main genotype, and I think it was like 75, 80%, the modern population shows that North African genotypes. So just be really careful with these genetic studies. Yeah. Very abused. Be critical. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. I don't know how we even got on that. I don't know either. But let's pull it back. <laughs> okay. So we're talking about summary of Bronze Age collapse. We, lots of sites falling. Yeah. Major civilizations, cultures falling, Hittites, yeah. Mycenaean. Like languages going away. Cypriots, you know? right? Yeah. On Cyprus. Yeah. Um, so then you were, you know, in a couple sentences, what's the typical narrative that we get? Right? Yeah, our, our stereotypical so narrative. Peoples, we'll, we'll get into who the sea people are in a second. Yeah. But that these sea peoples are coming from, usually it's like Greece mm -hmm. region, are coming and sweeping down through Anatolia, mm -hmm. down the Syria-Palestine coast, yeah. and then heading into Egypt as yes. this, like, last... Last Battle. invasion, yeah, big last invasion. invasion. Well, exactly. and there's a series of them. The first yes. ones appear in the reign of Ramses the second son, Marnepta, mm -hmm. and then they increase in frequency. And 
you get a whole series in the reign of Ramses III and Dynasty 20. No relation, actually, to Ramses II, even though it seems like Ramses III should follow Ramses II, but it's a different yeah, dynasty. Well, yeah. yep. a, lot of... um, a lot in between, a whole civil war in between. Um, and the ideology is that the Sea Peoples attack Egypt. They are victoriously rebelled yeah, by the Egypt. Egyptian kings. They keep them away, and they sustain and maintain their state until disconnected from a lot of it at the end of the 20th dynasty and mainly blamed on internal mm -hmm. incoherence, disorganization, and the influx of these Libyans who are usually disconnected from the Sea Peoples entirely. Uh -huh. which pisses me off. Yes. They just become these Libyan people. Yep. The Libyans come in and create enough tribal discord. And trust me, you will find this in the Egyptological mm -hmm. text. You, and I mean Egyptological, not Egyptian. Yeah. You'll find it in both. And the Libyans bring enough of their decentralized tribal ways to create decentralization within Egypt itself so that it's split up into two, three, four factions. Yeah. And so by the end of the 20, 20th dynasty of these different oh. factions, Egypt is ruled by North and South, yeah. maybe more. And into the 21st dynasty, you have Egypt split into, into multiple different parts. By the end of the of the so-called third intermediate period, Egypt is split into five or six different parts. And it's that decentralization that the 25th dynasty Kushite kings exploit as they move their imperial powers north and take control of Egypt. Yeah. 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 Good. Yeah. So that's our nutshell. That's our nutshell story. The typical narrative that we'll push back against as we talk mm -hmm. and messy it up and uh, critique a bit. It's always more um, complicated. The reason we're doing that is because History is told by the winners. History is told by people with agendas. When something is inscribed in stone, you should be very wary of what it is they're telling you. Why are they telling you this? What are they trying to counter? And just always be critical of the, mm -hmm. of the facts as they are presented. Oh, yeah, especially, you know, Menet Habu is on a temple, so. Uh, this heroic yeah. thing. Yeah, this yeah. heroic repulsion of these incoming peoples. Yeah. Okay. So we mentioned the Sea Peoples a bunch. Yeah. So I feel like we should talk about them. Yeah, let's let's talk about the Sea Peoples. Very mysterious yes. people. And the names and the stereotypical garments and mm -hmm. headdresses mm -hmm. we have from Egypt. Yep. And really only and from Egypt. It's only from Egypt. Yeah. The only reference to them, you know, as who they are with their names and all this stuff, it's, it's all Egyptian evidence, which is like very interesting. But we have, so they're grouped together as sea peoples because they came from the land of the sea which is why to people you know link them up with Greece and the you know Aegean Islands and things like this um, but we have them listed as the Sheridan, Luca, Tertia, Shekelesh and Ahiawa groups obviously you get Libyans thrown into this mm -hmm. it's not you know it's and the Libyans are the Meshwesh or the Libu mainly mm -hmm. yeah so you have the group either some expanding into other groups or and, and in um, Egyptological texts, you'll often read a coalition of sea peoples and Libyan groups. Mm -hmm. And there is great confusion as to whether the Libyan group should count as sea peoples or not. Yeah. But one must remember that, and it, it means that we don't know how long these migrations lasted for, when they started. Do you count the Meshwesh and the Libu of the 18th dynasty as the mm -hmm. first waves of sea peoples' settlements, less invasion and more migration and settlement? Yeah in Northwest Africa, and then they settle in and become associated with that place over three, four, five, six generations, um, and, and then, or more, and then they create coalitions maybe because they have common language, 
uh, or language streams with people coming mm -hmm. anew. Um, migratory patterns don't just happen in one moment. They happen over generations. They go up, they go down. There's like, think of um, the Texas border where you might have people who came from Mexico originally who might vote for Trump and think the border wall is great because they're on this side mm -hmm. and they don't want any more newcomers to, or to come in. Think of, or have a totally different identity now. Might disassociate yeah, now. from their migratory past as mm -hmm. was because it was some three, four generations mm -hmm. in the past and not even think of it that way, not associate themselves with the newcomers. I think it's very hard for us even today to, to think that somebody with a, a migratory past could want to deny it or downplay it yeah. or um, or could be code switching it depending on mm -hmm. where they found themselves in place and time or had maybe disassociated from it in a way that if it wasn't giving yeah. them any advantage then yeah. you know they were trying to and keep be in when we talk about these things keep in mind that there's great disagreement amongst Egyptologists about how you should talk about things. But this, what's the stereotypical language? Like if you picked up Grimal mm -hmm. and he's talking about this, the Libyans coming in, what kinds of words would he use? Tribal. Yeah. Like usually it's very mil militaristic, like warriors. Mercenary is a big one. But then like assimilation, right? Yes. Right? Where, but these, these peoples are often said to assimilate, mm -hmm. to Egyptianize. Yeah. And everything with the Sea Peoples coming into Egypt is generally seen through the lens of the primary culture, the dominant culture, and not through the lens of a give and take where the Libyans are bringing things to the Egyptians that the Egyptians gladly take on, that there's like a two-way street going mm -hmm. on here. So when you impose words like Egyptianize or assimilate, then you you take away a lot of the richness of and of this the agency time of people, yeah. and the agency of people. Mm -hmm. now, and people have agency to disassociate from their their migrant past and they practice that with glee every day um it's part of what people do but that doesn't mean that there aren't remnants of it they bring within a society that people can't even see anymore versus out like yeah it's true the house it's true it's, yeah like cool things like anthropologists have been able to determine that languages are maintained if women come to in a migration and that languages are more easily lost if it's men only and more of a quote-unquote mercenary migrant yeah. group. And so movement. from Men at Habu, which we'll talk about later, yeah. like more later on, but we have depictions of women and children yeah. in, in these groups. So it's in not livestock just and like the this, whole village in a boat coming towards men, you. Yeah. You know, going on like mm -hmm. a military yeah. excursion. And so if that's the case, then when people settle down, in Palestine or Egypt or wherever, you're going to get all kinds of confusing amalgamations of different languages, things mm -hmm. put together, different cultural streams. And the Bronze Age collapse mixes and rebuilding, mixes everything up in a very rich and confusing way. And we are still trying to unravel those streams. But the other thing that I think we want to avoid mm -hmm. is any sense that there was a purity, yeah. that there was a, an origin, that that people Egyptianized and forgot completely, or that they wanted to maintain their Libyanness and it's only their Libyan. It's yeah. never binary. It's never pure. It's always a big mess. And every time a migrant group come group comes in, they change the the culture that they're coming into. And so, it can be imagined too. It doesn't even have to be. What? Tell me what you mean. So like, you could 
you know, be generations past your migration. Yeah. And still in your in your family or and you might not even be, you know, doing any cultural um you know, remnants of that that old past of your family, but that you and your family, you know, keep up that oh, we're Libyan and right. it can be imagined or you, you know, I think we all have examples of, you know, grandma or something telling a story that's actually, when you look into it, it's not true at all. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. And so I imagine, because we're also dealing with the confusion of people coming from West Asia, mm -hmm. um, people coming from all different kinds of places in the Mediterranean, and people being an amalgamation, mutts, if you like, of many yeah. different things. What do they want to identify with most? Which culture? The dominant culture very often wins, but it wins at a cost and it wins not in a pure way. It wins by taking on all of the things that the newcomers are bringing with them in a really interesting way. I think too, to bring this back to the patriarchy, yeah, it's always the father's side that I feel like gets more emphasized. Like even like now, because you take your father's last name yeah. and most, you know, most people do that. So I have a Polish last name, so everyone automatically thinks I'm very Polish and all this type of stuff. But if you look at, you know, we've done the DNA stuff, I'm mostly Irish, Scottish, but, you know, would you say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm Polish because my last name's Polish and my dad's side of the family's Polish and, or, you know, or Italians, I feel like always, you know, you might be half Italian, half Irish, but you, Italians a lot will focus on Italian Americans will focus in on the Italian and what yeah. you you know yeah. you uphold versus another. It's not equal to the genetics or where you're most recently from or these things. It's a lot messier and it's so messy. Like and people look at me and they do not think I'm I'm half Italian slash yeah. Greek Neapolitan um, Caucasus even some North African thrown in there for fun. Um, but also that Americans were also always really into this and whenever you of talk where to, we're from yeah, whenever yeah you talk to europeans yeah. they're like why do you why do you care why do you care why do you need to know yeah. your your dna because you're I, and there's migrants wanting to go back and tell the story yeah i guess i think a, a lot of it uh nadi and i were talking about this last week that it's like no one in our families recorded it or talked about it so we don't know the story so everyone wants to just kind of know more about it yeah so anyway. yeah yes Back so to see people. But the, all we're saying is don't think of the newcomers as being without agency. They had a shit ton of agency and they're bringing it with them and they're changing everything as they and go. And that the Egyptians are putting these nice little labels on them. Mm -hmm. Oh, Sheridan, Pelisset, whatever. Dehumanizing, separating. And that yeah. they might not have identified exactly with those mm -mm. terms no. or any of those things. Yeah. So these are the Egyptian terms for these peoples and groups and yeah. Trying to understand and categorize different people. Yeah. So the earliest reference we have is Amarna letters. They yeah. start popping up in the Levant, um, some incursions happening and some Levantine city-states being like, hey, help, asking yeah. the Egyptians to kind of intercede. Yeah, kind of terrifying letters mm -hmm. saying, yeah, so attacking. These people keep attacking and attacking and attacking, send help. Yeah. And um, sometimes the letters just kind of stop. Sometimes. Well, and that's where Akhenaten gets his bad rap that he didn't yeah. care yeah. Uh, or send any. He, uh, he had created a bit of a problem in his own. That, he had something at home to worry about. Yeah. Um, but then we have Ramses II yeah. when he's fighting in the Levant, trying to keep whatever holdings they have up there. 
the Sheridan are in yeah. his yeah. Egyptian, or, you know, one of the core yeah. of his Egyptian troops. So mm -hmm. it's like, they can at some points be enemy, they can at some point be mercenary, if you want to use that term, or included within, were they living in Egypt, or did he hire them, or did they hire themselves out, or how You could you... argue that the beginnings of a migrant movement often start with sending the young men out first, go make mm -hmm. a living, go do something, go make a fortune. Bring... We can't have you here, there's not enough for you here, you can't make a family here, there's nothing. They go off. And then later waves of migrants, once then it's like when it gets really bad or once they've established something and maybe they can anchor baby people in, they can, um, the baby's the wrong term, but anchor people in, they, they can then um, connect with families, mm -hmm. women and children. Or you could argue that the devastation in the north of Europe gets so bad that what started as a movement of mercenaries and young men becomes a movement of everybody yeah and everybody's on the move because the devastation in Snowball europe effect. is so bad that everyone is on the move just looking for something to eat looking for a place to go mm -hmm. looking for a livelihood yeah yeah and egypt i don't know if it's you know based off the egyptological perspective that we always are like egypt's the greatest everyone of course wanted to come to egypt but we'll talk about later you know effects we see in out non-Egypt versus in Egypt, and it does seem, I, I have a question later on about, you know, everyone always says Egypt was the least affected. And yeah, how, it's interesting, how much do we see this because this, this migrant movement sweeps around the Mediterranean, and then when it hits Egypt, and as we said, Amenhotep III had Sheridan and his mercenary troops, it's not like these people were unknown, but when the big waves of migrants hit Egypt, and they're able to be repelled, so we're told, um, or when they're settled in there, Egypt as a state, a culture, a language stream, a system does not fall. It is able to maintain itself. And that's what is meant. It's not that it is not forever changed. It is forever changed, but it doesn't fall. They don't lose their Hittites. script. They yeah. don't, you know, there's linear B is gone forever. It's not like that. Yeah. It's it, the palaces are all burned down and all the rich people are replaced. It's not that it is kind of, but it's, it, it happens longer. in the midst yeah. of an ongoing cultural system. And, and so it becomes much harder to see and compare mm -hmm. to other places, but there's text throughout. So you can do a lot more with the migratory waves and influences on mm -hmm. Egypt in comparison to other places where there's only archeological and material evidence. Yeah. And so as, as you also said, they're usually distinguished in, you know, artistic evidence by their headdresses mm -hmm. and their armor. And then people try to connect you know, these iconographic attributes to then, oh, the tusk helmet is Mycenaean or things mm -hmm. like this. So we have, you know, different different um, types of headdresses, feathers. Feather headdresses, uh, some that go all the way around like a modius yeah. kind of thing. Uh, beards, mm -hmm. typically seen as non-Egyptian. Non bright colored woolen garments. Yeah. Um, yeah. Use of spears and lances and mm -hmm. swords versus... Mm -hmm. Egypt is traditionally the bow. And and they've compared it to the hoplite army, yes? Like the hoplite system of fighting with a short sword and armor and oh, like helmets. The Alexander type of, exactly. Uh, so you yeah. can get in close with your but you have your mm -hmm. band of brothers next to you and a the different yeah. fighting style that was very effective. Yes. I see and, that argument that yeah. that's the main that they had this new military innovations and that that's why they were able to sweep across but i think it's i think most people would say it's a lot more complicated than just oh, having a new sword type <laughs> but their military abilities were 
sexy enough, Re- recognized, yeah. recognized enough that they're pulling these people in to help train. And it was no different when the West Asians came in the second intermediate mm-hmm. period. And you have the so-called Hyksos or all of these West Asian migrants coming in, probably because rain fat agri- agriculture was collapsing and people needed food and places to settle. And those mercenaries brought with them the chariot, chariot. From, from further afar, right? If the yeah. chariot comes from Anatolia and domesticated horses and all of that. So, and Egypt was forever changed by, by all of that migration. So, these migrants come with great agency and the ability to change culture from the inside out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, if we even want to push it back further, Egypt having Nubians in their army yeah. as, and they being specialists in the bow. Yeah. And so Egypt has been, always has this kind of stereotyping of its. Egypt is so good at, and, as Americans are as well, as most cultures are, of taking the foreign thing erasing the foreignness, claiming it, mm-hmm. and saying this is now ours. Yeah. And that, and we perfected it, and it's awesome. So much so that Ramses II's new smiting motif is instead of taking the old yeah. mace head and mm-hmm. smashing the enemy on the head with it, he's on the chariot with the reins wrapped around his waist with, with the bow and arrow mowing down enemies as he goes yeah. forward. Yeah, two things that weren't Egyptian. Not Egyptian, and but that's what you'll see on the big pylons as you go into a temple space to separate the profane from the sacred. Mm-hmm. That's extraordinary, you know. Oh, and Medinahabu having the tower too. And like, Danny Candelora, Dr. Danny Candelora, UCLA alum, now teaching at SUNY Cortland, has argued that the when you go to Medinahabu and you go into the first courtyard and you go around back, you see the after effects of war. And what are they doing? Chopping off hands. Chopping off hands and penis and penises. Putting the penises in one pile, hands in two other piles. Mm-hmm. And counting the enemy dead, and they're giving that as an offering to the god Amun Re. And this is not something that you saw previously. And Danny argues that it comes from a kind of a, a almost a bastardization or a misunderstanding of a justice system where you cut off someone's hand if they do something like in the Bible, improper, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, in or Hammurabi's law, law codes. codes yeah, where, yeah, you know, you steal something, get your hand cut off, and. That wasn't a typically Egyptian. Yeah, and it's thing. it's changed and made Egyptian, but it's Into taken from system. West Asia, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And the two hands found at Daba. Yeah. In the yep. and it's like that's buried in the court, so it seems like you know yep. someone was dealing out justice, and then it yep. somehow gets then changed into the Egyptian counting yep. and yeah, marking of the of their victory. But what was your original question? I don't remember. I was just saying that we, you know, they distinguish them in certain ways oh, and yeah. that how they're integrated into the military and marking them in this, in this fashion. Mm-hmm. It's super um, complicated. Okay. So wrapping it back up a little bit. So we have these sea peoples, various groups that the Egyptians, you know, term, um, sweeping through the Eastern Mediterranean down into Egypt. Mm-hmm. Meremtah first battles against them. And they could be in the Western Mediterranean too, yes, but we have coming, hardly any evidence for they it. Also we don't look. definitely could be coming from like right. Cyrenique, modern Tunis, Libya, mm-hmm. and like sweeping down mm-hmm. to the Western. Because Africa. maybe they settled in north, the Western parts of North Africa mm-hmm. during the beginnings of this migration, and then they leak, then they become Libyan, and then they league up yeah. with Which um, is like, that's the new coming. question. They always, oh, they formed a coalition. Yeah, it's always stated it's that like, way. Ha- that means you need a person leading you. Mm-hmm. Um, For these big invasions of, yeah, it's true. You know, and then if they're just, the way they're usually termed in the 
they're like pirates almost, like mm-hmm. like raiding around the Mediterranean. It's like, well, that doesn't seem very coalition-y. Yeah, so the Sea Peoples are often set up as disorganized, decentralized pirates, like pirates each yeah. acting on their own. Raiding. And yet, what do the Egyptians do? Merneptah and Ramses III, when they talk about the invasions of these Sea Peoples, they do set it up as a sophisticated, mm-hmm. coordinated yep. attack of a, that is a coalition of many different bands or groups that are coming together, creating strength in numbers mm-hmm. and attacking and one place, yep. one place, all at once, yep. at one time. And that that advance well, needs to be repelled by an organized Egyptian counteroffensive. And yeah, those and, are the stories that we get. And for Ramses III, it's a by two battles, mm-hmm. like running one on land and one on sea. So it was mm-hmm. like, a, you know, they attacked like a two prong attack yeah. that he had to with his troops fend off. Yeah, there are land attacks as well. Exactly. Maybe that's why we have the Libyan coalition. So you could have one mm-hmm. coming from the sea and then people coming yeah. in from land from they the west or the other coast, places. On the Levant, yeah. they had like a stronghold at Jahi, right on the border between Egypt and the Levant. And then Near they Gaza. Also, yeah. And then mm-hmm. they also attacked in the Delta yeah. by sea. So yeah. it's... But again, we can talk about like, how reliable these are. Is he coalescing many little battles into just two yeah you know we can we can discuss that and by putting things on the walls i mean this is a time period that i've argued is rather populist where there's you want to please the military i'm arguing that like the abu Simbel reliefs of kadesh or the karnak ones or the Mm -hmm. abydos ones that ramses ii and other ramesid kings are producing is to but ramses ii i think invents it seti starts it a kind of populism that is now very dependent on a base of military people mm-hmm. that supports the king and supports the king by driving a wedge between the elites and the king that had previously supported the king. So this is now a populist kingship. And when a populist king tells a story, you can think back to some recent political past in the United States or to other populist leaders around the world. But when a populist leader tells a story, there are many untruths in it, Mm -hmm. but you must embed it within truths that people are familiar with. The larger. The larger event, like September 6th, or September, January 6th happened in this way on this day, at this time, at this place. But then the agenda, who was involved, what was done, all of those things are very different depending on what side of the debate you were on. Mm -hmm. And a populist might have a very different version than somebody who's who's a non-populist with a different agenda. Yeah. So you, we have to be much more critical than I think we are as Egyptologists with this data. Mm-hmm. They're not there to tell us the truth. They're there to feed their base. Yeah. And they're there to make sure their base is happy and, and they feel buoyed. And this base is part of the mercenary world. And some of them, I guarantee you, and this is where it gets super confusing, some of these people are probably Sheridan in origin uh-huh. or Libu in origin. And they're, they were mercenaries going all the way back to um, 18th dynasty. And they connect through family lore mm-hmm. and other things that this is who we are. And so Ramses and Merenepta and Ramses III, they kind of have to thread a needle between yeah. an ultimate dehumanization of the new migrant and a gathering together of the base, of the many of whom are yeah. new Im- or immigrants of multiple yeah. generations, to create a story that, that feeds and supports what's going on here. Mm-hmm. This is very modern, is what I'm trying to say. You will understand this more than you think. Mm-hmm. It seems like you hear sea peoples and it sounds mysterious and strange yeah. and you hear these invasions and it sounds so cool and unusual. But it's just what we're dealing with now. It's the same shit 
whether you're talking about Guatemalan Americans or Mexican Americans here, or you're talking about people coming from West Asia, coming into Europe and going through Hungary. And it's, it's the same yeah. kinds of stories that we're dealing with globally, yep. I think. And, I and think confusion. people to it. Yes. Yes. That it feels very current. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does. Okay. We're going to eventually get really into the Menet at Habu stuff. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to put that on the back burner for right now. Mm -hmm. But I do want to get into what the various theories are behind why we have this collapse. Yeah. Right? The sea peoples yeah. invade. Why did everyone go on the move? Go, so why did, yeah, why are there migrations? Why are people needing to attack and raid and destroy cities? Why was there this big uproar? What's yeah. going on? So, and you're probably going to tell me yeah. that there's well, the there's the climate yes. so impetus. Yes, we have climate. Possibly climate change, mm -hmm. possibly being an effect. So non-human induced climate change yeah. would be yes. one part of it. The other part of it would be a rampant social inequality mm -hmm. that's a part of the palace economies yes. of many of these polities yeah. that are being toppled. So systems collapse. Mm -hmm. um, other than that, what what other reasons do um, are we given that other forces were attacking? those people mm -hmm. so then they then needed to migrate so other predation new technologies are introduced new which allows war to be more efficient it allows movement around large areas to be more efficient yeah. new boats um things like that yeah political struggles between dominant a new boat can make all the difference right oh yeah 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 um systems collapse inequalities between center and peripheries mm -hmm. climactic change mm -hmm. natural some natural disaster there was Maybe you, a volcano. If you read uh, Eric Klein's book, he goes through, you know, some people argue that there was a lot of earthquakes mm -hmm. at that time mm -hmm. and what um, had that effect. And you only need one domino to fall to make people have to move, which destabilizes a place, which makes more people move, yeah. and then so on and so forth. And disease or plague. And um, then, of course, disease or plague, which yeah. we are living through now. So don't discount that either. And where do we have the evidence for disease and plague first, potentially? Well, we only evidence that I could find, there's not a lot actually. There is not. The Egyptians do not talk disease and plague. Letter that the Egyptian army brought back plague from the Hittites uh -huh. when they were on campaign. Yeah. Which, if I mean, the 18 flu, it's like militaries, war, and plague just go like very, you know, hand in hand. <laughs> there's also some, and that's 19th dynasty, yes. right? And then there's. Yeah, and then there's mm -hmm. some evidence of 18th dynasty plague yes, for Amarna. Tel Amarna, yeah. maybe, but maybe more internal. It's yeah, but like, but plague be like a measles to... outbreak. It doesn't have to be. And what what is this plague? Is it black plague, yeah. bubonic plague? We have no idea, but some sort of disease that's that's really destabilizing yeah. society. But yeah, that could pop up. But you know, plague could pop up always. And don't tell me that's not human induced because that's some bullshit right there. Yeah. Um, these, these epidemics are human induced. They are us taking down forests too, too quickly, mm -hmm. um, disturbing habitats too much, um, building yeah. cities too fast, expanding too, too quickly. Early. Yeah. yeah. And to each other, too many people, um, all of these things create these epidemics that then spread like wildfire and can be very destabilizing. So yes. Yes. And so I think the hottest reason right now is the climate change stuff right i think the climate change stuff it's i think that people are connecting to it because they want to connect to the they want to, to today's, see find the solution find the solution connect to today's human induced climate change mm -hmm. and and try to see it um 
this isn't going to be human induced climate change. It's going to be the typical kinds of droughts that you might have in a yeah. rain fed agricultural world, which is the other reason that Egypt is where you would want to go. Egypt's not rain fed agriculture. Egypt is getting its, it, it is in a way, Egypt's yeah. getting its water from the monsoon rains that are hitting the Indian Equatorial. subcontinent and yeah. all the way to Ethiopia and Eritrea mm -hmm. that then flood the Blue Nile that then come downstream to Egypt that flood the banks, create that rich, thick silt that's being brought from uh, Central Africa. And, and that is what allows the farming to continue in Egypt, even in the absence of rainfall. There is no rainfall mm -hmm. in Egypt. It would be a desert otherwise. Oh, yeah. It's a big oasis, right? So Egypt is that place where everyone wants to go because if it hasn't been raining and there is a real drought, and people aren't able to eat, in Egypt there will still be food because the water's coming from a different system. Or it takes longer to hit Egypt. Yeah. Because it has more of a backup. <laughs> well, as I understand it, I am no climatologist, but as I understand it, the weather systems that might stop the rain in, in West Asia are different from those of the Indian subcontinent and the Horn of Africa, mm -hmm. and thus they, exactly. they aren't connected. So one might fall in one place and then it would mm -hmm. be sustained in another. Mm -hmm. But Again, yeah. you guys can correct yeah. in comments, as you know. But 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 anyway, I think that people are obsessed with this, and I I'm not as interested in the climate change thing. I'm not saying it's not it's not there, and there aren't droughts and things like that. But if a couple of droughts can completely topple a state something or a polity or a palace, then something else is up too. Yeah. So it's always a complicated mix of, yes. of things, of over-exploitation, living with your conspicuous consumption on the edge of a knife or just a little bit of and then destabilization. Change, <sighs> yeah, it'll all fall apart. Yeah. Um, I actually think there's better evidence, and do you know this? There's better evidence that the first intermediate period mm -hmm. was more of a climactic yeah event Drying that period, yeah. that really the droughts just mm -hmm. really unsettled Egypt, things true. internally within Egypt mm -hmm. because the drying was coming from the, there were no there were no floods yeah. um so it's a different kind yeah. of event yeah and so if you're interested in more in the climactic evidence mm -hmm. there's like um you know umpteen papers on this where they're taking you yeah. know core samples from you know Greenland and all this kind of stuff um, we'll link them, but there's a really good synthesis article by Knapp and Manning, Sturt Manning. Oh, that's nice. Um, so we'll throw that in the show notes. And I had to read through, and I'll give you their main conclusion. Was Please that, do. You know, I, it's I like a 90-page article. Mm -hmm. It's a book, almost. Um, and they go through every single study and critique it and, you know, analyze it and analyze all the data. But their main uh, conclusion is that there's a definite arid cooling trends. Mm -hmm. It's getting drier and colder. Okay. Um, but it's unclear how much this actually affected people, um, what impact it had, you know, on a greater scale, and that some areas were warmer and wetter. So while it gets maybe cool, cooler <laughs> and drier in some places, that water then goes somewhere else. Where it did it get cooler and drier? Do you remember which cooler places? Cooler and drier in the Near East. In the Near East. What about mm -hmm. Southeast Europe? I'd have to... A lot of these studies are very, you know, looking at the at the Near East where the rain fed. And looking at core samples mm -hmm. of dirt. Or, you know, they're taking it from, like, Greenland and it's more oh, and then, globally. Okay. Um, and then yeah. when they do these, like, really focused samples, it's certain places are wetter and warmer and certain places are cooler and drier. And so it's, it's very inconclusive. And it's kind of much like what we're having now where, you know, the Northeast in the United States, it's like a rainforest there, just raining constantly. Mm -hmm. But then here we have no rain. Yeah. 
and it's and sometimes it gets everywhere. incredibly cold that dip in yeah. the middle of the United States and where like the Santa Anas are yeah. getting crazier yeah. and so it's you know it's on a whole we're warming but there's also just like lots of climactic you know up and downs overall warmer drier things are different I mean I think people are also interested in the in the climactic mm-hmm. impetus because it simplifies the story yes Climate and changes. It, and it takes it all people. It takes it away from it's, people. There's oh, no agency. Had, it wasn't our fault. Yeah. The systems were fine. They were great. Minoans and Mycenaeans, they were awesome. Palaces. No problem. The palaces were beautiful things and they shouldn't have fallen. Mm-hmm. Um, that is implicit in the holding tight to some of these climate change theories too much and discounting the mess mm-hmm. that this time period was and the reasons for it. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we look to today's world and we try to figure out why some of our systems are failing, um, I would argue for the mess rather yeah. than any one prime mover. And so this article further concludes that it's because of the people mm-hmm. and the, the taking, the, the palaces taking from the agricult- agricultural systems and peasant mm-hmm. populations mm-hmm. that they were leaving themselves at this nice edge, as you yeah. said. Yeah. And that so when any little climactic thing happened, it's just, just will fall and collapse yeah and in uh, my next book the good kings which now we've realized should be out by the time this is released and that's great so hopefully so you you've read go. it <laughs> you can get one anywhere books uh, where books are sold but um in there i have a chapter about simwaster the third which predates all that we're talking about here mm-hmm. right so that's a um 19th century yeah. bce reality but it's an interesting comparison because it shows what a palace economy can do. And what Sinwaster III did was enfeebled his elites through a combination of co-option and coercion and made them come to his palace and took away their ability to directly administer their lands and gave that administration to an empowered bureaucracy such that when the kingship was enfeebled itself mm-hmm. and didn't have anybody to hand it off to, the elite was unable to really yeah. step in because they'd been emasculated, if you like. And and so and you just had this bureaucratic class that then stepped in and kind of was the thirteenth dynasty. If you are if you want, you mm-hmm. can you can make it that. Oh yeah. But just handed off kingship right. back and forth. Yeah. So, you know, a palace economy is a very powerful thing, but long term it's going to have some real consequences. And those consequences are it pulls too much to a center, and if that center fails, everything else has been enfeebled and, yeah. and it can't sustain itself. So that's that's where I would go as an analogy with this. And not period. to sound too much like Bernie Sanders, but like <laughs> I love you, Bernie. Um, but like too much held by too few, right? right. That and yeah. that's happening today. Oh I think my everyone can goodness, see. Is we it have more and more today. billionaires, and it's yeah. like when wealth or resources, water mm-hmm. are held by too few people, and mm-hmm. then you know it's so easy to water to over to over um, water. California yourself. and Northeast Africa. Oh my goodness, the water. Mm-hmm. But anyway. That's the next fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've read uh, Eric Klein's book, 1177, mm-hmm. his ultimate conclusion after going through every all these pieces of data is that it was the perfect storm yeah. of these factors all yeah. playing together. It wasn't just one thing. But know, the f- perfect storm is always going to come. It's just a matter of when, not if. You're, just, you're creating all of the conditions and you're setting it all up. some point, yeah. the carrying capacity is going to fail. And, and Which is why he picks a firm date for it yeah. like, as like a, a representative of this perfect storm happening. Right. Obviously, it didn't happen in 1177. No. But 
Um, that's the analogy, right? And then, as you said in the beginning, you can see this stuff happening in the 18th dynasty, and it yeah. slowly builds and yeah. builds until it's too much and yeah. has to break. Um, and we'll get to later on, my last couple questions are like, these falls we see throughout history, you know, I think we'll talk about it later. Okay, okay. Um, but, <laughs> you know, how we can think about them retroactively, but right. yeah. Okay. So I think we gave a good background of the Bronze Age collapse, why it happened, who these sea peoples are, um, and so let's delve into Egypt okay. more. So we first see evidence of this, so now looking at kind of sources. We first see evidence popping up in Merneptah's reign, mm -hmm. uh, year five, right? Mm -hmm. um, that column and other things. The column, yeah. we have his Israel stila yeah. um, talking about some stuff, Karnak evidence. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's internal strife happening, mm -hmm. and then we see next good evidence in Ramses the Third Reign. Yeah. Uh, so year five and eight, where we have battles happening. Yeah. Um, and depicted in all their glory, ideologically driven glory, mm -hmm. on the Temple of Medinet Habu, his yeah. Temple of Millions of Years in Western Luxor. Um, so, yeah, so we have Medinet Habu. So let's, what is Medinet Habu for people who, who don't know? Medinet Habu is. One at Medinet, Medina. Yeah. Um, it's one of the most amazing temples you'll ever visit. And if you get to go to Egypt and you fly down to Luxor, you will spend a lot of time on the east bank of Luxor mm -hmm. visiting Karnak, temples of Karnak and Luxor, so-called Luxor Temple today. Um, but on the west bank, there are many different temples that are built by individual kings mm -hmm. that are meant to support their cult in the afterlife. So you they get buried in the Valley of the Kings, but then to feed the king and make sure that he gets everything that he needs as a divine ancestor who is going to work for Egypt, you have to have this whole temple built to maintain his spirit within your land, it's to pull his yeah. spirit in. And it's called the Temple of Millions of Years. And Ramses III's Temple of Millions of Years depicts all kinds of religious festivals. There's mm -hmm. images of the Sokar Festival, uh, the Opet Festival, um, his own, there's elements of Decade Festival, maybe, and the outside of this, of this temple is always got, it's mostly got yeah. violent scenes, scenes yes. of hunting on the mm -hmm. southern side, is it the south? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Scenes of the Sea People Repulsion yeah. on the northern side, yeah. and, and then other things on the, on the east and west on the front pylon there's front scenes, pylon is him and, and it's an old school smiting most motif yeah. of him standing and getting ready to take one of these enemies and strike them on the head yeah and but on the northern side you see you see these all the migrants coming in some of them armed some of them families with livestock but mm -hmm. they're coming in in boats some of them on land and it, it's it has a text that accompanies it that describes how how all of this went down. Mm -hmm. And Ramses III's a really interesting character because his father, Setnacht, started a new dynasty, started the 20th dynasty and took power from the remnants of all the civil war and all the messed up stuff at the end of the 19th, probably um, toppled Tawasret, the mm -hmm. female king, uh, and took the power from her. So this is, it's already a new family of kings and warlords and Ramses III probably was an adult when, when his father took mm -hmm. power and he would have been one of those scrappy warriors that was in the fight to make Egypt great again, if you like. And then he's there, like, I like to imagine Ramses III kind of like 
uh, Maximus and Gladiator, mm -hmm. like one of the the men who who comes to power amongst his men, and he's a, an equal among um, a first among equals, kind of Roman in that sense. Caps, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, and and to have him show himself fighting alongside mm -hmm. his band of brothers, if you like, against all of these sea peoples, it's pretty interesting. Okay, so. I want to discuss how reliable we think these scenes are mm -hmm. for historical, mm -hmm. you know, to add to this narrative. Um, but first, I think it's important to talk about Egyptian temples and what's on the outside of them and what this, how Egyptologists typically understand it ideologically versus what's on the inside mm -hmm. and why they put certain scenes yeah. in spots. And it's not just to show a scene. Um, so how does it how do these, how do scenes function just in a normal mortuary temple yeah. ideologically? Yeah, you only put the violence on the outside. That's the profane space. And that violence creates a sacred perimeter, a force mm -hmm. field, a magical circle, if you like, that makes it so that divinity can dwell within that temple. Whereas outside of it, it's where the king moves out to keep everybody safe. Yeah. Um, so... And the he's creating Ma'at. Yes. Oh, I see where you're going. Maybe. What, yeah. what would you like to add there then? Well, so that on the outside he's doing that there's disorder. Yeah. And on the inside it's nice and order. Yeah. And so the king doing violence on the outside is to create the order on the inside. Right. As this kind of uh, cosmic yeah. representative of the king creating Ma'at, which is... Is law and order in the Egyptian way, if you like. And... I, I like looking at it that way because mm -hmm. the king is the only one who can do it, mm -hmm. right? You often hear populist leaders say, I'm the only one who can fix it. And Ramses III is, is there on the outside smiting the enemies and the violent death that he inflicts is good and moral and necessary yeah. and publicly shown, right? And then when you get inside the temple, the first thing that you see, you go through the gate and you turn around and you look at the back of the pylon, mm -hmm. and there is the aftermath of the war. And that's where you see all the hands and penises cut off and put mm -hmm. into neat little piles, all bureaucratically organized. And these enemies have been dehumanized, uh, dismembered and utterly decapacitated. Mm -hmm. So um, incapacitated. And, and so it's, um, it's a very interesting way of showing power justice ideologically. Meted out, yes. Yeah, meeting out justice. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So having that in mind that there's this ideological purpose to these scenes, yeah. then how reliable do we think they are or how yeah. I guess I follow up on the same way that I was talking before that if there is a political agenda for talking about and showing these scenes to make your base happy, to feed your base, if mm -hmm. you like, then you have to expect, you as a historian must go through these texts with a very jaundiced eye. What, what do you think Egyptology does with these texts? How do you see them working through it? I think in older, when you go through the older sources, specifically I'm thinking like Redford's work, mm -hmm. they're taken at face value mm -hmm. a lot of times. And like kitchen and stuff, it's all mm -hmm. very face value. This is a true we believe depiction them. of yeah. the scene. Yeah. Um, okay, the numbers might be a little fudged here mm -hmm. or there. They're a little inflated, up. perhaps, but to that make there them look was good. these two battles, yeah. and Ramses went out, and he's depicting, and that, you know, there's earlier 
when looking at the sources, right, we have like from like Tutmosis III earlier at Karnak, we have in the text it says, oh, this was copied from the day book. Right. So it tries from to Megiddo. add, yes, from yeah. the Battle of Megiddo. So it tries to add credibility by saying, oh, this was the day book that we were carrying with us on campaign. Yeah. And we kept logs. Yeah. And so this is directly copied from that day book. So these are very accurate. And so you can either read it as it's accurate because it's saying it's copied from the day book, or they're trying to make you think it's accurate by saying it's copied from the day book. Um, so you have to think about it in the same way you would today. In the same way, if you're sitting in a court of law and somebody mm -hmm. is going to put forth their version of the story and then somebody else, you don't have the other version of the story. You only have one version. It's like only hearing the prosecution and not hearing the defendant's yes, side, right? Exactly. So you have to, as a historian, you know. You see people's perspective. You this. don't <laughs> get to see people's perspective. You don't get to hear what they have to say. You only have the the doling out of a very perfected and idealized version of this history. And it means that... But you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. You can't be, throw up your hands and just say, yeah. well, I guess that's it. Useless. We don't get to use it at all. Mm -hmm. It means that you have to take the texts with a lot of criticism and care. And what can you conclude? You can conclude there, was, there were mass migrations. Some of them were yeah. armed, some of them were not. You can conclude that there were sophisticated coordinations of mm -hmm. attacks. You can conclude that the Egyptians were worried enough about this enemy to depict it as an enemy. And to give them that that power, because depicting an enemy gives it power and reifies it in its own way. Um, you can conclude that the aftermath of it was not as sweet and awesome and puppies and rainbows as Marnepta or Ramses the mm -hmm. Third wanted to yeah. to present. And to do that, you would look at other kinds of texts. So you have the temple texts on the one hand, but then you also have for the same time period, a whole lot of administrative texts. Mm -hmm. And some of them talk about places where there are sea peoples and Libyans settled yep. in the Western Delta, some in the Eastern yes. Delta, these big new cities that are created kind of like, imagine a refugee city, a big refugee city after, you know, Syria is emptying yeah, out so it's like if you in Jordan or something. Imagine that. Yeah. yeah, but if you're battling these people and then you're settling them in Egypt, like, did you win? <laughs> well, because you can, this is the other thing, you have to think of what real migratory mm -hmm. events are like. Killing people is expensive and takes a lot of time, and it also takes a lot of will. And killing women and children and migratory groups, that's, that's also really hard, too. So if you have migrations in the tens of thousands you're not going to be able to send an army off that's built of mercenaries that are connected to these same people yeah. to go off and just murder people en masse. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't work that way. You might try to start something like mm -hmm. that, but you can't exterminate a whole group of incoming people no matter how hard you might try. They will settle. They will find places to settle. They have their own legs. They will walk. They will move. And so maybe there was and a bit of cooperation yeah like, can I jump ahead a little bit because mm -hmm. this is really this is really interesting to me so let's take for granted that the 18th dynasty Libu and Meshwesh mm -hmm. that we have to the west northwest of Egypt mm -hmm. is a sea people's migration it just happened earlier people settled earlier associated themselves with Libyans etc etc right but they're sea peoples and they're continuing to come over but they're an earlier wave if you like and let's assume that many of the newcomers, the, the new coming sea peoples, people. often identify 
with these libu and these mesh wedges. It's hard to tell them apart. It, it is. Oh, and nice. they get rid of the Pelisset and the Sheridan monikers, and they, they go in for those older entrenched libu and mesh wedge. And they become associated with them. And then in the same way that, like, Italians came over to the New World, and some of them were from Sicily, and some of them were from Naples, but everyone's like, you're just Italians, and yep. you're just grouped into a big group once they come to America, right? They're mm -hmm. just homogenized. Yeah. In the same way, all of these different greek speaking or whatever speaking non peoples non-egyptians coming from the north with their weird feathers and shit mm -hmm. are associated with this they're kind of homogenized and put into this one group what we can say for certain and this is so interesting is that by the end of the 20th dynasty these people are so entrenched and dug into every aspect of the egyptian system from the military mm -hmm. to the priesthood to the bureaucracy that by the time the state or the dynasty falls they're the ones who are... They're the ones that pick it up. Yep. So it will be like, you know, I don't know, JFK is president, but you need a little more discord in between. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you know, the people in the 21st dynasty who end up taking on the kingship are Libyans. Mm -hmm. And they name themselves as that. You know, Harry yeah. or before that in the 20th dynasty, high priest of Amun claims the kingship, calls himself a chief of Ma on purpose, and puts it into a stone temple, like proudly showing his ethnic heritage, probably because it served him with his base in a populist movement that involved mercenaries and all of these people that he needed to represent well with. So he's trying to have the Egyptian cake yeah. and the, the ethnic migrant both, cake and eat both them both. Yeah. Exactly. But, but in the end, the Egyptians say we repelled them when we won. But the people who are going to take over Egypt in the north and the south, because Nessie Banebjed in the north, first king of 21st dynasty, and then Harry Hor, Pionk before him, mm -hmm. Harry Hor both had Libyan heritage, and Panegem could very well have had Libyan heritage. Do we even? And then all of the other guys. Taking on a name to tap into this. Why call yourself chief of Ma? It's possible. Like if that, that became now advantageous, it's like you could even. Then be I like, think I think people would reject somebody who claimed they weren't what they say they are. In the same way that like yeah. Elizabeth Warren was utterly rejected by yeah. people for claiming Native American heritage she didn't have. If you're a fake Italian and you try to set yourself up as that, good luck. They will excoriate you. They will yeah. destroy you. So I think it's the. I think it would be the same thing with Pionk and Harry Hor. They're coming from those army mercenary contexts, mm -hmm. that community of practice, if yep. you will. We like throwing that one around. Um, look up Laven Wenger Communities of Practice. It's really useful for these kinds of messy time periods. But coming from that, it they they needed to hold on to that Libyanness. But the long story short is that the Libyans win in a way, mm -hmm. and Egypt is never the same. Egypt, you could argue that with the Bronze Age collapse, there is no more quote unquote native rule. Mm -hmm. But then when you start to split those hairs. But then what's Egyptian? Exactly. You could be like, yeah. well, the Ramesses were probably from Not the Levant. Yeah. And so are they pure Egyptian? And then mm -hmm. you start, you go further back and further back. You're like, oh my God, what is even pure Egyptian at all? And good luck with that, because that's, that's a rabbit hole. That yeah. <laughs> way too, yeah. way too messy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've read a couple articles arguing how to look at the Menedit Habu scenes and how to read them yeah. and how reliable they are. Yeah. Syphila is one really good one where... Barbara Chifila. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Chifila, yeah. yeah. Um, where she, she argues that the narrative is misleading, mm -hmm. uh, that everything's a little too vague, mm -hmm. they don't really show being united as leaderless, like there's not a clear leader, but that... But then, you know, in the text it says they were a coalition and a leader, so that the text and the image isn't matching. Um, O'Connor 
also has a good article we can link in the show notes about how to read these texts yeah. and again sees them more as functioning within what ideologically how it how these scenes function in a temple yeah um and that he sees most of the evidence because it's of what you said about what's being uh shown inside the temple is yeah. the aftermath yeah as being what's actually the emphasis um and highlighting this aftermath yeah. of the chaos yeah and that again it's about the king yeah um and then you can get into you know was it just two battles like we have depicted or is there a bunch of little ones and all this kind of messiness but i think you know what you should take from it is that from the egyptian perspective that there you know was this migration of people they were the enemies and um, and i'm not we're not arguing that you take medina de habu's inscriptions and you just yeah. throw them away and you don't but also, take them why as say useful year eight and five like five and eight i mean I think they'd have to name them. Like you have to say January 6th, 2021, 2020, right? Yeah. (laughs) That this happened, you know, you have to have the date. Mm -hmm. The date's important. People remember it. How you present it is a completely different thing depending on your perspective. Mm So year five, year eight, everyone's going to remember those times as being really difficult. They had to make sacrifices. Um, Maybe they had to send off some of the males and their families to fight Mm -hmm. for some reason. I think that those years were important. And I think mentioning certain years brings people together. Everyone can say, I have that communal memory. I think it creates a communal memory for people. Um, And this is a memorializing thing. I think you're right, because it's like with the undergrads now, the thing everyone keeps saying about them is, that, oh, they were born after 9-11. Yeah. That's like the mark. And now they will be the undergrads that went yeah. through the undergrad years during a pandemic, right. and they'll remember that. Mm-hmm. They'll be like, I was an undergrad during 2020 and 2021, mm-hmm. and that will be of importance, and people yeah. go, oh, wow, you're, you're that generation, and mm-hmm. we'll talk about it in that way. But another cool thing about this and winners and losers and how things are changed by these big migratory movements and and centuries of great change is if the Libyans win, win, right, quote unquote. Which the Egyptians aren't going to show even if they did. Even if they, but then by the 21st dynasty, you know, they're they're as Egyptian as Egyptian, but they they still maintain Libyan names like Shawshank Mm -hmm. and... um, Tack a lot and you know yeah. interesting names that are phonetically spelled that obviously promote an ethnic heritage that and the same way in my family where my grandmother's name was Elena Elena Valentine and then she changed it to Eleanor because it needed to be anglicized mm-hmm. but then when she and then she named her daughters anglicized names yeah. and those two daughters named her, their children the Italian name mm-hmm. so I have a sister named Elena because they wanted to go back to the original name. And it, was, it often takes three generations to get to that were point. Americanized enough that you could then it's a emphasize point of, your Italian and it was okay. It's an yeah. ethnic pushback. You yeah. now want to state we're and it's an attempt to create a purity where there is none. But you're trying to create like the the origin story, mm-hmm. the pure story and and a new kind of identity, even though obviously we're we're more American than you can possibly imagine, right? Yeah. Nobody speaks Italian except for the bad words and the food words. Yeah. Um, and yeah. but the other winners besides the Libyans would be the institutions, because what stands after before the Libyan mm-hmm. and Sea People's migratory invasions, however you want to understand it, and the Bronze Age collapse and all of that mess and the elite replacement that happens, you have a king and his court. And you have like Amenhotep II going out with his elites and shooting at the ingot. And I'm like, big strong man, let's go hunting together. And Amenhotep III is like, yes, watch me kill lions, you guys. And it's all king and his court. 
as you move into the Ramesid period and its populism, and as you come out the other, and that's part of the Bronze Age collapse, well, so that's right? That's my question. Is yeah. like, do you think the Libyans were able to so easily in, embed themselves in the yes. system because of yes. the populism? Yeah, because of the, the populism and the institutionalization, and in some ways the privatization, in some ways. like, And I mean by that, that all of these different, the, the, there was a corporatization of power mm. that that and that power that used to be held by elites who are embedded in their own lands and a king embedded in his court is now being shared and corporately so because of maintained. the kind of systems not collapse if but the, just change no collapse too yeah. if the bronze age collapse starts at the end of the 18th dynasty and i think you could say that for the mediterranean it does yeah, right yeah. like when does when do the minoans fall when does mycenae fall Minoans and then it goes early, on yeah. right yeah. it goes on and on so if you say it starts at the end of the 18th dynasty when does the institutionalization of egypt start and it starts then. Mm -hmm. That's when the temple as an entity becomes more powerful than the king. Yeah. And it's why these newcomers, these Libyans and sea peoples as were, can then infiltrate into those institutions and become, become superpowers. And then when they become kings, they're kings in a different way. Mm -hmm. They're kings that have to work vis-a-vis -vis these institutions and corporations and not just make ad hoc decisions well, that, that are going to be followed no matter what. And when, during the Libyan period, when they're kings, yeah, it's very much when you see all their titulary and stuff. It's so and so brother. Yeah, there's so much more family. Yeah, which is where the tribalism gets pulled you in. You could argue that was Ramesid beforehand. They but not Libyan or Sea people. Yes, emphasis. The, it's so funny and racist. How yeah, it's so racist. So Egyptologists look at Libyans and they're like, oh, look at the tribalism, but. The Ramesses were doing the same thing, but because Ramses II is so great, we don't call him tribal. Yeah, but when you look at all of his children, that's the boys. all those bo those 50 sons and 50 daughters, that is some tribal Saudi Arabian shit. That is like, you know, with all your extended family and each one of those sons has his own entourage household, of power yeah. and household. That That is some decentralized tribal power that is new to Egypt before they would never have shown such tribal power. The and king. the Ramesses create that. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't the family, it was the king. Exactly. It, and then and it slowly becomes the family, isn't You could argue the 19th dynasty is also the institutionalization of kingship itself. It's the corporatization of kingship mm -hmm. itself, where the king at the top is a figurehead of a much larger elite Could you trace the system. back to Akhenaten and messing with the temples? And, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then there becomes now a the temples are so big and it's like corporations are too big to fall and then well the, i what i would argue that akhenaten did and i put this in the my chapter for him on the the good kings as well yeah. is i say that because he he destroyed the elite base on the one hand and co-opted it on the other mm -hmm. but but drove a wedge between it but he also needed new elites and to create new elites he went to the military and akhenaten create he, he let the genie out of the bottle and it could not be put back once you empower a military as an elite on par with old elite families then you you can't go back that's yeah. how uh, that's why the 18th dynasty it attempts to end with a female kingship if smenkare is nefertiti. nefertiti 
like the 18th dynasty had done before, like the 12th dynasty had done before, but it can't do it because the military is so empowered that the 18th dynasty will end with a strong man, with I, and then there will be a kind of coup, whether it's real or not, and Horemheb, a military man, will take over. And then how it goes from Horemheb to Ramses, it's a totally new family, it's the military leader. Right. He passes it to the quote-unquote strongest, not yeah. his son or right. his like a family member. Yeah. It's to the strongest general. So, in you know, coming back full circle to what you were yes. asking me about the beginning of what caused the Bronze Age collapse and where, where is all of this coming from, it's all feeding into a system of populism, decentralization, and institutionalization that is already working. And then all of these migrants come into this system. And they're like, oh. Right. And and they can find ways. Yeah. They're going to find ways. People are smart and clever and crafty. Especially in the Delta where yes. it was always kind of decentralized. Mm -hmm. I mean, we always talk about a class. It's like how how much control, you know, the Delta went and it's very hard to, you know, coalesce. And they're always doing, the kings are always trying to implant into the Delta and mm -hmm. make these little plan settlements and you know this. territory so, and it's like that's the place to go up and carve out your little portion and this is really interesting too yeah. because the delta versus upper egypt is the breaking point of egypt you know we think of the united states as being north versus south and the blue and the gray and all of this stuff egypt had this in spades and for millennia mm -hmm. and the delta is that place where you have a massive people massive grain yeah. and beer yep. and lots of languages, lots of different, lots of decentralization, but lots of globalization too and connection through that. Mm -hmm. Lots of new thinking, lots of innovative thinking. Mm -hmm. Upper Egypt, which is where all our evidence comes from and the way Egyptologists like to think, yep. because that's the data we have, that's where Medinet Habu is, is much more traditional, conservative. There's, There's one route. binary ways of thinking, one route to do Denial. something. <laughs> And there was one route, the Nile, and there's not all these different tributaries and different languages. Yeah. It's it's much more easy. It's much easier to coalesce power in Upper Egypt, um, especially at the Cana Bend. Mm -hmm. But it, so we're talking about a time I mean, period of great cosmopolitan globalized change that's very Delta oriented. But we're using Upper Egyptian, very conservative, mm -hmm. more binary ways of yeah. thinking to explain it. So good luck with that. Yeah, it's a mess. Yeah. It's a mess. And you, I mean, you have Greek mercenaries coming into Egypt in the Delta, and the Delta's just always been this. And North and, North and West Asian mercenaries, yeah. obviously, are yeah, always coming always. into the Delta. And now at this time period, you have Libyan mercenaries coming from the West into the Delta. So Delta is always, but, I think, the like, it's hard for Egypt to hold. Yes. In, you know, there's always, so the, the boundaries are very, very fuzzy. So I know you have this in your notes and you're going to ask me this eventually, but I'm going to jump the gun a little okay. bit because the best social documents, mm -hmm. in my opinion, yeah, for yeah. this time period are like funerary documents, yeah. funerary documents like tombs, whether they're decorated or not, whether they have a whole bunch of stuff in them or not. And then the coffins that enclose the individuals. So mm -hmm. you can see what kinds of people are preserved, what kinds of education levels they have, what kinds of spending abilities they have, um, what kinds of names they have. And you can say a lot about this time period of change and collapse. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I wanted to point out before you get to your questions is there is an Egyptologist who um, he just recently retired, Martin Raven, mm -hmm. and he works at the site of Saqqara yes. and found a reused tomb there, the tomb of Iurudef. And, and he does all kinds of work in this Saqqara area, but he points out that in the 20th dynasty, there's, there's no nice elite coffins. They don't 
exist and that you could say this for Saqqara and, and other northern necropolis. Whereas in the south, you have really nice funerary goods and you have a maintenance of an elite. Martin Robbins' conclusion and my conclusion using his data is that the elite of the north during these incursions was replaced and it was brutal and it was way more brutal a reality so they were like on the borderlands they were on the borderlands and they were getting hit from all sides from west asia from libya from the sea they, they were just getting hit everywhere and they're these big migrant cities that are changing the landscape mm -hmm. and warlords are coming in mercenary warlords with all of this skill and all of this weaponry and banding together and driving the old elites into a new existence mm -hmm. there is an elite replacement happening in the and delta the king even though the capital is still at Memphis, technically. No, the capital is Paramses in the yeah. northeastern delta, but that is quickly silting up. And, and so we think maybe he's... Oh. Tannis is becoming more important. Tannis, okay. Is, and Tannis probably predates the 21st dynasty. Yeah. That there's something there in terms of a, a shipping port that predates the, the yeah. 20th dynasty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but if you have a place like Saqqara and you have people who have worked there for generations and they have really nice coffins coming up for the 19th mm -hmm. dynasty and you see an elite that is entrenched and powerful and all of these things and then it moves into the 20th dynasty and you have really shitty coffins, yeah. something's going on. Yep. The coffins that we see right after this Bronze Age collapse, mm -hmm. how, how can this corpus be used to understand this, this uh, change? And in, in Egypt, we're now, you know, going from New Kingdom to Third Intermediate period, mm -hmm. period. And so how can, what do the coffins tell us about? The coffins tell us so much. Yeah. I get so excited <laughs> talking about the coffins of this time period. Uh, I've become like a little girl. Um, so, you know, the first thing, and everyone knows this about me, I study coffin reuse. Oh. And the reuse is... Is super interesting it's not just before there was no reuse and now there's reuse it's the way the reuse works even changes so reuse at the beginning they don't know quite how to do it mm -hmm. they kind of suck at it they don't know how to fit the coffins together they make mm -hmm. mistakes you can really you can see it really easily um, that more generations pass between the making of the coffin the first time and the reuse of it the next time as time goes on in the 21st dynasty reuse becomes so common I argue that they're reusing coffins, taking out names and varnishing over the blank in the name so that they can reuse it at a faster clip. It was preemptive. Yes. They were thinking that, oh, this is Yes, this will be, be yeah. reused again. They're, they're reusing to reuse mm -hmm. multiple times. And when you varnish over a blank in a name, you create like a wipey board, a mm -hmm. dry erase board kind of surface where you can paint over it use it, do the ritual, do the funeral, put it in the ground or in the tomb, in the tomb. And, um, and then take it back out again, what, take the, put the body to the side, wipe it with a wet cloth and you're good to go again. And, but reuse also shows during the 21st dynasty, reuse within the context of family. And that's because there's a huge amount of gender modification where you take a coffin set that was made for a male and you turn it into a coffin set for a female. Mm -hmm. And you would only do that if your family owned one coffin set and the next person to die was a female. And you're like, God damn it, we got to redo it because it's expensive. You got to change the ears. You got to change the wig. You got to change the hands from fisted to flat yeah. um, or flat to fisted, depending on what it was. Females are passive and have flat hands and the males have the fisted hands. But 
the the reuse also shows sometimes they care about hiding it and sometimes they don't. Mm -hmm. um, and the, but for the time period that we're talking about, for the Bronze Age collapse, like the beginnings of it, the twentieth dynasty, there's almost no coffins to talk about. There's like seven or eight oh. coffins, and every single one of them shows evidence of reuse. And they're um, yeah, they're not quite sure how to go about the reuse mm -hmm. at this time period. It's um, and and there's almost no coffins left, which means that most of the 20th dynasty coffins were taken and used to make 21st dynasty coffins. It, yeah. it means that the 20 the 20th dynasty, the latter half of the 20th dynasty after the murder of Ramses the mm Third, -hmm. was a brutal time to to live in Egypt and deal with all of the civil wars and the breakups with certain patrons and the reconsolidations yeah. with new patrons. This was a tough time to be alive. Yeah. Yeah. In my, and in the Delta, it was hella worse. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so you mentioned the, these effects on Egypt. So, yeah. so we have, right, the Menedhabu stuff. We have the Sea Peoples coming in and Ramses Third. He battles them back and, yeah. uh, you know, gets rid of them. And then that's kind of, the last we hear of them, we yeah. have some evidence from P. Um, Papyrus Harris of uh -huh. him settling them in the Delta. Yeah. And you can, you know, talk about why he would choose to do that. Is he just saying that because they were already settling the Delta and he wanted to tell you like, oh, no, I let them do it type of claim. you got to put these tens of thousands of people somewhere. There was probably already a settlement, a refugee set of settlements mm -hmm. there. And yeah. he's like, go there. Just figure it out. Yeah. Um, I love how yeah. they're uh, described like like grains of sand on yeah. the seashore. Yeah. So lots and lots of people yeah. um, that end up being sold. But so And they were useful in some ways yeah. because Egypt is going through a time in which they're they're being buffeted about. Think of our military today and where most of the infantry comes from from for our military this is a volunteer force with no draft mm -hmm. you need a mercenary force and you have to pay people and not everyone who i mean you Good and i job. are we going to be interested in going into the military maybe as an officer or something higher level yeah. but you're not going to be interested in in going into that basic training and you you're going to want some reward for for doing that yeah. there's a lot of privilege involved and a lot of wane of risk and reward mm -hmm. and so having Given these new migrants to take on the jobs that people don't want mm -hmm. particularly military jobs this is of use yeah. to somebody like Ramses the mm third -hmm. and you can see in the text that they make use of it yeah yeah so we have some evidence that they're being settled so mm -hmm. integrated um into Egypt itself um what else is happening or what other effects do we see, or not effects do we see um, in comparison to other cultures, right? So we have, what I mean with this, I'll give you an example. So, right, we have some letters coming from the Hittites or mm -hmm. other Near Eastern groups saying, you know, there's famine, there's starvation, we're being attacked, and they're sending these letters to Egypt asking for help. So presumably yeah. Egypt's okay. Yeah. Um, and has you know grain stores and not famine and and Egypt responds. It does yeah. send grain and yeah. and aid, um, mainly you know resources to these groups. So if we're looking at for the cause of this Bronze Age collapse as famine or climate change, Egypt doesn't seem to have been as we talked about earlier because of the Nile. Yeah. Seems so people are coming to, to them, but 
But yeah. there's other texts that talk about how Egypt is very much on the back foot, like mm -hmm. the tale of Wen Amun. Yes. Um, so Wen Amun is this dude from the south. Mm -hmm. He's from the south, right? Mm -hmm. And he's told to come to get the cedar for a boat yes. for the god. So the kind of boat that you carried aloft, not a, an actual boat, yeah. maybe. I mean, it's debatable, right? It could be a boat that can cross on the river. But he needs cedar wood to like do it. It's like a sacred boat. Yeah. Not, not like a... And he needs shipping cargo, which means he would need a reasonable amount, but not like a huge amount mm -hmm. of wood for that kind of an object. And he goes off to what we would call the Lebanon mm -hmm. today, um, ancient Phoenicia. Not maybe you wouldn't use that word yet at this time, but the northern Levantine Biblos coast, yeah. Byblos, Tyre. Um, and he goes to these places and he's treated like shit. And he doesn't have the power to support his men, his ship. He's he's like using all of these mercenary pirate dudes to help mm -hmm. him get there. And then he loot, and then they rob him. The pirates rob him, and he's he's got to rely on his abilities to connect to these people. I mean, that's the Egyptian story right there mm -hmm. in microcosm. This one guy. If you think of Wen Amun as all of Egypt, they've been enfeebled, and they're they having their, to. Yeah. They lose their privilege, and they're happy, but they but they go. It's so funny. When Amun is like, "You should give me this because Amun says so," and the yeah. one of the kings of I, I can't remember which yeah, is it Tyre yeah. or, but he's That's like, um, "Of whom is your king ruler still?" And when Amun is like, "Oh my God, you just did that," and the, it's just they it's so much global, like today. It's very much like post Trump. America, yes, it's like talking all to our a, own allies are kind of like or talking to a white man from Wisconsin who's mad that you're all woke and and saying that Black Lives Matter and how dare you because because for that person an All Lives Matter retort is my life is more important than anybody's <laughs> and that amount of privilege is is something that when somebody loses they can't see it mm -hmm. the the text the tale of one almond is so clever but and has so much self referential. Uh, self-referentiality because it, you're able to show Egypt as so privileged that it's blind. It okay. can't see what it is anymore. And so whoever wrote that, I mean, maybe it was somebody from a migrant immigrant family who understood what was going on or somebody who had a clear eyed sense of, mm -hmm. of what it meant to that being, what it meant to be an Egyptian was quickly changing. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's pretty cool. And so that's some other ill effects. We see Egypt standing, maybe glo like globally, as in the Eastern Mediterranean, falling. And we've talked about this in other podcasts, episodes, where we Ramses III is quickly dispatched um, at the yeah. end of his reign. So he, yeah. though he claims all this glory in dispelling the Sea Peoples, his reign doesn't end on a high note. No, it doesn't. And there's a lot of yeah. internal strife, yeah. which is part of this whole system's collapse. Yeah. Um, that yeah things aren't okay, even if you take the sea peoples out of the equation. Yeah. Um, but they're a effect of these systems collapse happening elsewhere. But then, so there's, you know, strikes happening and... Um, Do you know what I would compare a lot of it to? Like, some people are more affected by immigrations than others. Mm -hmm. And those that aren't directly affected by the immigrants, don't see the immigrants, don't meet the immigrants necessarily yeah. but whose economies are still upended mm -hmm. by some of the changes and you don't know what the actual cause of these things are you just see the right down the line they end up demonizing or simplifying mm -hmm. what's actually going on and i would say that i mean the murder of ramses the third this assassination happens in the south yeah. by people 
who arguably they were going to be hearing all kinds of things about what's happening up north. And they have Libyan raids themselves that they suffer. The Libyans will come from the Western desert and take a whole bunch of shit and maybe some people and then run away. And it's a, it's a terrorizing time to be in Egypt, but the Thebans kind of had it cushy but are, in comparison but to other people. But the most dissatisfied with apparently how Ramses is feeling. Exactly. So it's kind of like, like right here, right now. They're the quickest we're, to turn. So this is interesting. We, we live, we're in Mar Vista right now mm -hmm. and you're close to Mar Vista. Mm -hmm. And what do we see in Los Angeles all the time? I mean, like we're calling. Yeah. So the, there's yeah. tent cities yeah. everywhere. The homeless, uh, you know, it's jumped the shark, the, yeah. the situation that we're dealing with. And I follow this this site called Next Door Neighbor, Next Door or Next something. Door. It's in, it's yeah. yeah. And you read it and people are like, oh, another tent city just sprouted up. We got to get rid of Bonin. And everyone yes. hates our councilman, Mike Bonin. Now, I'm not saying that if I were Mike Bonin, I would know how to deal with the massive influx. But how's it just of, his fault? No, it's not. But it is easy for people who are not directly associated with the homeless people, not directly associated with maybe the meth epidemic that is the methamphetamines that are coming from Mexico that create these kinds of situations, but want to blame someone, want to create a demon. And so they look at it and they say, it's Mike Bonin's fault. He needs to be removed. And there's this whole recall Mike Bonin thing. So I can imagine as an analogy, and it's a rough one to be well, sure, it's but no, I like mean, think of the Thebans, right? As they blame the president for anything that goes wrong. Yeah. It's, and it's yeah. just like, he, one, he doesn't have that much power because we didn't give him much power <laughs> right. for a good reason. Right. So it can't be just solely Biden or, you know, insert anyone, any presidency. But it's can't you imagine a bunch of Thebans going, make Egypt great again. Yeah. This sucks. And everything this used better. to be awesome. Yeah. And we need to kill the king. And the only way or to make everything better is to kill the king. people in the make, north oh, and yeah. they're pissed off. Yeah. Why are you... You know, we need to build a wall. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, why are you cooperating? Why are you giving land and holdings? Mm -hmm. Maybe he's taking land from temples or elsewhere yeah. and, you know, trying to, you have to deal with the situation And more somehow. mercenaries and migrants and new people with weird names coming in day after day. And you have a lot of xenophobia All going the old, on. gross, incestual mm. Thebans are like, Argh. Yeah, and then like, how dare you, like... Yeah. How dare you bring in Maybe all these new Libyans and see people? Mm -hmm. like, get him when he's there. Oh yeah, you can see you know? easily how a king could be killed in this kind of political climate There's of fear yeah. and demonization. It, it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. So no, the twentieth dynasty does not, or the mid twentieth dynasty. You can see how it it creates the runway yeah. for the rest of the twentieth dynasty to go significantly yeah. downhill. But that internally, Egypt was already having issues yeah. before the Sea Peoples came. Yeah. And so, you know, there was internal stuff going on, and then the Sea Peoples just added further yeah. issues, which I think is what happened everywhere in yeah. the Eastern Mediterranean, that yeah. there was internal issues, and then because of those, or as a result of, you know, all these overlapping circles, yeah. um, we have these then, the Bronze Age collapse. And, and it's so confusing. I wish we had texts that talked yeah. about what people thought was, you know how in the United States today you have people saying, go back home even though you've lived, your family's lived here for like four generations mm -hmm. or something, or um, go back to Africa or whatever people might say about the purity of the United States and what they perceive to be the purity. You don't have those kinds of texts, but what you do have is a very complicated situation, just using Medina Habu, where you see that there's an influx of people coming from certain places and with certain tribal associations and that the Egyptian army is staffed with some of those same people. So it's like a super confusing situation of who's Egyptian, 
who's not what, who, even, what is what, what is, is egyptian exactly at this time and it's changing so fast that that people are highly destabilized and very fearful mm -hmm. and don't know what to do Scared. with how to make it all work yeah. you can see it at Jerome medina mm -hmm. to some extent um you can see it in lots of places so yeah so uh, another i think more external effect of the sea people's invasions incursions whatever you want to call it on egypt is Egypt loses its holdings in the Levant. Yeah. So Egypt kind of the borders. Yeah. However you want to see Egypt's holdings, we won't get into empire. Whether it's or empire hegemony or hegemony. Or whatever, yes. We won't get yes. into. But, I'm on the hegemony side um, if you haven't heard that. But its borders have contracted. Yeah. Um, doesn't, you know, its holdings in Levant. And it's holdings to the south in Nubia, you know, the, Nubia the gold mines. Of they, this time yes. Everyone like, does. Push Egypt out mm -hmm. and, you know. Um, become independent, and so Egypt contracts a little bit. So those places where they used to get extractions and tribute are now no more. Yeah. So they used to have Gaza, they used to have Jaffa, they used to have, have sites set up in the Levant. Yeah. And they used to have all these gold mines in the mm -hmm. south, that, but down at the second cataract, maybe third or fourth cataract, now no more. Yeah. So this is again contributes to that collapse. It's, there's the weakening of the state, mm -hmm. it falls into an intermediate period of decentralized rule, yeah. a bunch of little kind of city-states pop up. Yeah. Um, and so I think we've kind of already answered this, but just to kind of conclude the collapse narrative, Egypt always in the literature is said to be the least affected because yeah. it doesn't fully collapse. Yeah. Um, and I think this is maybe part of the issue of using the term collapse because yeah. it's never, nothing's ever that neat and tidy. And if you look at the Levant, like, okay, yeah, so a city maybe burned or was abandoned, but then a couple decades later, it's use, re it's right back. So is yeah. it really a collapse? If yeah. New people came and built a new city right on top of it. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it all depends on your evidence. It all I depends on what you, too. yes. It, but if you, I mean, Egypt, you could argue, goes through extraordinary elemental change and i would say that in many ways it does indeed collapse and that the kingship as was does indeed collapse the system that was there before is completely different after what egypt has that other places don't is it's able for whatever reason to maintain a socio-cultural stability and continuity of language mm -hmm. religion temple institutions that other places do not have the benefit of. So in those other places, temple institutions are taken apart and rebuilt whole cloth or almost whole cloth. Whereas in Egypt, there is more of an ability to span the bridge from the, from the 20th dynasty yeah. into the 21st using existing institutions. I think because of how centralized it was. So when it becomes more decentralized it's still not as decentralized as say mesopotamia or greece or something but the other reason we say that egypt doesn't collapse and this is something that i've published on before and that amber can put in the show notes use the the ramesid volume is that all of our evidence comes from thebes mm -hmm. if our uh, uh, the evidence from the delta is very much the same as the evidence in west asia yeah. which is Big collapses yeah. and big elite replacements and no coffins except for some coffins that have shitty fake hieroglyphs on them. And you're like, wow, that person who commissioned that coffin couldn't read, wasn't trying to read, mm -hmm. but was trying to show that they could read. And you're like, whoa, that's interesting. So the amount of collapse in the Delta is, in my opinion, much more extreme than we've seen because it's a, it's a dearth of evidence. We're always taught lack of evidence isn't or the absence of evidence isn't the evidence, but archaeologically it, it often is. <laughs> and if you had 
a, a, an archaeological set of material data before, and then all of a sudden you're missing that. That is evidence. Mm -hmm. It's gone. And that the elite replacement in the Delta was much more significant. And I would argue that the temple institutional replacement mm -hmm. was also pretty brutal, pretty yeah. brutal. Yeah. So they were just dealing with the, with texts that come from, you know, a good 500, 600 miles away yeah. from and the epicenter of all of this trauma. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, the evidence is skewing mm -hmm. how we're seeing things and, yeah. and um, yeah, so maybe and affected maybe in different ways than what we're seeing in other locations. Yeah. So I agree. We have to think about it. Keep it yeah. in perspective. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Cyprian Brute Bank has yeah. this very interesting, um, what a name Cyprian. Yes. Brute I love Bank. It. So in, in, um, making of the middle sea, yeah. his recent, um, work, uh, he claims, so it behooves us, which I love the word behoove. It behooves us to set aside the rhetoric of collapse, and instead think of the disasters and the palatial regimes as problem solving and enabling moments for certain peoples, which I think you would agree with. Yeah, I do. Um, and as this collapse, as the birth pangs of a new social and economic order. Mm -hmm. uh, do you agree? I do. Yeah. I do. Um, collapse is a very sexy word. Mm -hmm. Well, it makes, but also it, it says it's an end, but doesn't. It's also a new beginning, but the word collapse just, it's the end. And it's not also, oh, what can come out of it? It can be anything. It, it discounts the innovation mm -hmm. and the negotiation, the adaptation that has to be made during these times. And it makes it all about the destruction and the pain, which is hegemonic in and of itself. Yes, yes. It supports the ruler at the top mm -hmm. of the social pyramid. We're talking about the king collapsing, but then that collapse actually may be better for most people. Or some institutions collapsing yeah. because then you can say the institution is, oh, what we've heard this before, too big to fail, mm -hmm. right? So it can't collapse. You have to shore it up and maintain it. Um, I think I have said this before, but maybe not on this podcast, that collapse is the is the patriarch authoritarian's wet dream. Have I said that on this podcast know, before? Well, I've said it here. <laughs> but it, it it's a word and an idea that spreads fear very quickly amongst those conservative people, those privileged people that remember the power, that have that, that cultural memory of what they used to have, that want to make their place great again and go back in a sense and collapse narratives when they're spread in the right way can help to create a populist base, even amongst new immigrants, new migrants, new peoples, and can keep it, it this way because yeah. change is it's only going to be bad. I would argue yeah. that the collapse narrative is part of the reason that we talk about Egyptianization and assimilation. Collapse and spreading that fear is all a part of the, the simplistic understanding that migrant stories are all about just assimilating and Egyptianizing. Mm -hmm. I think it's all a part of the same thing. Whereas if we avoid collapse, then you also see the migrant story as having agency on its own side and not just subduing itself or the dominant culture. It's a much more complicated story. But people like, especially people in power, mm -hmm. they like the simplistic story so because it, it is a collapse. Like, it is a collapse. <laughs> it has to be a collapse because the more of a collapse it is or an impending collapse or look at what happened to the Hittites collapse, mm -hmm. then they're able to galvanize people into surrounding them with more power mm -hmm. and, and lead into something new. You could argue that the collapse narrative, this is why people, when they say, um, 
they compare bad patriarchs and they're like, oh, you guys, the Columbus wasn't so bad because the Native Americans were much Army worse. Fighting. And, yeah. yeah. Or, you know, the Aztecs were killing babies yeah. and they were super horrible. And in my opinion, we can transcend all of it and say, yes, patriarchal hegemonic structures usually suck and are socially unequal. And I would say that the inheriting hegemonic structure, the Libyan kings of the 21st and 22nd dynasties, they love the collapse narrative too. It works for them as well, even though their ancestors may have been the ones that helped Suffered. to create yeah. this collapse. Yeah. Um, it's going to work for them full circle. And you see the same thing in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the best supporters of narratives of needing to build the wall because the all of the rapists are coming over from the southern border are, are immigrants into the United States, pretty recent Italian Irish kind of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And so quickly forget the that same they were narratives were that too. they were demonized, the yeah. same narratives were used against but them. There. But patriarchy unites everyone. <laughs> or at least unites all of those people that will benefit, mm -hmm. right? So it doesn't matter whether you were an Irishman who was called dirty and gross and disease bringer, if you're gonna benefit yeah. now. So yeah. And so this also kind of reminds me of I think in more recent scholarship, the Egyptological pushback against intermediate periods, the term, yeah. and what what these periods are, yeah. as maybe things weren't actually so bad. And we usually, oh, it's intermediate, the art sucks. Yeah. Like, I'm thinking of the first intermediate period. I mean, the art does suck. It does suck, but, like, why is... We're focusing we have to call a spade a spade. The art does suck. It does suck, but... We're just judging. But does that mean life from, sucks? Does yeah. that mean that things were bad for people in a household? Mm -hmm. In, in their worlds. Yeah. How much did it, how much did the king, you know, they're going from a centralized to a decentralized state really affect a farmer in Middle Egypt? Yeah. They're still probably paying their taxes to their local nomark guy. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the local nomark gets a little richer because things are a little more decentralized. I think the point would, yeah, they can take a little more. more. The point would be then from what you're saying is that the intermediate period could have been a time period after the initial breakup with the patron mm -hmm. and the crisis and the trauma, yeah. but it might have been a time period of more equally distributed wealth mm -hmm. and less um, just generalized social inequality and and overdone conspicuous consumption by the patriarchs at the top. And I think other people have argued as well that these decentralized periods, I think like Scheidel's Fall of Rome, that it's in the decentralized um, that innovation can come yeah. up, right? Yeah. And yeah. then you get the Renaissance, or yeah. you get the New Kingdom, yeah. and it's in the intermediate periods that you start seeing new technologies coming in because there isn't so much controls and things yeah. like that on yeah. things. So totally agree. You can. It's so, not so much of a collapse. It's you can add more of a positive spin on it if you want to look at it long term. Like, I wouldn't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater because the intermediate periods are visible. Mm -hmm. You can see them yes. in the landscape, and you can see what, you know, there's a bunch of building and then it stops and a bunch of building and then it stops. Um, conspicuous consumption, social inequality, whatever yes. you want to call it. But that also means that it's our perspective of how we understand it that has to change. Yeah. So the intermediate periods are not necessarily these time periods of only stress and deprivation. That the time periods of hegemonic control could have been a state imposed time period of stress and, de and deprivation yeah. that we don't talk about in that way. Mm -hmm. So. And so I'll end on this. So we talked at the beginning, everyone's really into the Bronze Age collapse, collapse in general, 
because I think we're going through one right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we are. Do so, you think we are? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's it's scary because the term collapse is scary. Yeah. And, but it always, I always am reminded back to history. And yeah. I think we can always take a good lesson from it and that, you know, things sometimes have to fall apart. We have to hit rock bottom, as you say, yeah. for new, better things to come. Yeah. That people usually don't innovate and change unless they're forced to. Yes. Um, things have to get bad enough for people to, to go, fine, really I'll bad. stop using my fossil fuels. Yes. So, so I guess, uh, what's your last, you know, if we can take anything from from this narrative, from this Bronze Age collapse, or what can we learn from it? Well, I saw this recent, here's what my mind yeah. So I saw this recent TikTok mm -hmm. um, of, a, of a student, I think high school age student, mm. learning about the Bronze Age collapse mm. and then turning to the camera and being like, this is right now. Yeah. And then being like, like, you know, this happened before. What can we learn from these things? And I guess what I would say is a collapse is not necessarily a collapse, that nothing stops, that things keep on going, that things stopping is also, I would argue, the survivalist wet dream <laughs> of being able to go out and Mad Max it and yeah. tell the women what to do. But it's also a human interest in having some sort of finality and from all of the stress and all of the change. Change is exhausting. And people don't know how to deal with it and where to go and what to do. And there is something comforting, strangely, horrifically comforting about everything kind of just ending. And just they're starting just over. starting over Fresh. a clean slate, but not with me because I'm tired yeah. and you guys do it or somebody else, but it's just done. But yeah, so a collapse yeah. for one might be a new beginning for another group. And, yeah. you know, if we want to look at it like globally, like certain world powers, you know, one will... For a while, England was like the global power, mm -hmm. and then it, you know, kind of, it's, you know, decreased in influence or however you want to put it, economic, yeah. political influence, and other places, you know, take take its place. And there's always this. I think this Jordan, given... age matters too. Like I think the younger you are, the more able you are mm -hmm. to zig and zag yes. and to think about how you can adapt because you're younger and you're not set in your ways. You yes. you also don't have a whole lot of wealth to protect yet. Yeah, even I like. I got nothing to lose. Right. You know, I have a house to protect. I have other things. I'm inherently going to think more conservatively. Yeah, I'm, I'm good with like everything falling because then maybe someone will forget all of my debt. Maybe. Just get yes. The seriously. internet, like the system will just like, you know, if we just. And that could, creates like, different incentives. So the youth of today will have a very different, even more positive outlook on this collapse. Like bring it on because they want the stock market so, to go away so because up, they want, but, you know, all yeah. of these things and, and the student loan crisis and all of, all of these yeah. things, the, the, like, the way we exploit you, a little collapse might mm -hmm. not be the worst thing in the world. So I think who is the have, who is the have not, that's who's writing the history as a professor, who's writing a dissertation now. And what I know, the crow, crow just crow. came. That was kind of scary. Very ominous. Um, it's true. The harbinger. The harbinger of collapse. <laughs> but um, but so we'll end it by saying that collapse is not what you think it is. Yeah. And it's just an ongoing process, and, and the process think about is it messy. Long term. Think about it way long term. Way long term. Like the U.S. has been, we've been around for as long as the Bronze Age collapse took to happen. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's not, things aren't quick and neat and tidy. And it's like the ridiculousness of people saying slavery ended a long time ago. I'm like, but did it? Yeah. Did it truly? Because for an Egyptologist, it happened like yesterday. So I think that we need to reframe all of these things. Yeah, these collapses take hundreds of years. So dig in. If you have children, teach them well. Or and 
or maybe you don't have them. You don't want, you're like done not doing it. No. It's, it's awesome. I just want a dog. Yeah, that's fine. And you don't have to teach the dog about the collapse. Exactly. You know, he just hugs you. have to you. send the dog to college. The dog is a experience I mean one final thing <laughs> is one book that really affected me is Cormac McCarthy's The Road mm -hmm. and I think this is the patriarchal view of collapse that everything goes horrible the world is incinerated there's a few people left and you have to like deal with the people who are trying to either F you or eat you and and women are farmed for the milk yeah. they can create and this is the way the world is and it's a brutal horrific reality and everything's on the defensive and growing out of it is this it's just, a, it's brutal. I don't think it is that. Real collapse is not like that. Unless an asteroid hits the world, that's a yeah. different thing. It's a different it thing. It goes back to the idea that there's a finite wealth. Yeah. And that, but you know, that's all wealth, money, all this is like made up. And so, yeah. and that there's this finite issues. And obviously there's finite resources. Yeah. You can tap out of things. Yeah. But yeah, I don't think it's going to ever be like that, um, but think about what you just said, Acute. that wealth is all made up and yeah. that all of our money is now just ones and zeros in some computer account. Gold and in if the there bank. is a collapse because there's not gold in the bank, then you have people that could lose in an instant all kinds of wealth and resources, though I suppose they have their yachts, so they're okay. Yeah, but what's a um, yacht? Without fossil fuels yeah. to run it. I don't know. It's interesting. See, you can go down these rabbit holes. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, but everything gets reorganized, so I would call it a reorganization. A yes. reorg, yes. but not a reorg coming from consultants. A reorg coming, coming from, from the, the bottom, bottom up. Like imagine if you have a corporation and you're and and there's like a prison break and everyone at the bottom mm -hmm. just decides they're going to do it in their own way. That's the kind of reorg yep. that we're talking about. Nice. <laughs> yeah, but the guys at the top usually maintain control oh, again. Yeah, they we can usually see it tighten right now the screws. going on with the big spending bill and what's being cut and who won't. This is why what I hope will happen this time, this time, is that the, the earth cannot sustain another reorg into a patriarchal authoritarian hegemony. It cannot sustain it and it will not sustain it. And there needs to be a solution of sustainability if we are to continue on this mother earth. Yeah. So I foresee a collapse that leads to a reorganization into a post-patriarchal reality in which wealth must be, because of the way the earth is being treated, distributed in different and innovative yeah. ways. And, it, that, and also like maybe being decentralized yeah, is better. It is better. And I, the, my whole last chapter in The Good Kings is yeah. about this, so yeah. you can check it's out great, my thoughts there. Thank you. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. I try to be hopeful yes. about I what we're going yeah. towards. I think great we can points. be hopeful and we can create something pretty awesome mm -hmm. if we make it through. So that ends on a positive note. <laughs> That's positive. Da, 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 I guess. Positive. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you all for listening. I hope you got your collapse what dream satisfied <laughs> um but as, as i think you always say stay frosty stay frosty yeah um and thank you so i'll do it i know what it is this is yeah. afterlives with kara cooney um thanks for listening thanks for listening um we'll see you next time yeah bye bye Thank you to our listeners for your support and for subscribing wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review and help raise our profile and let others know about it. Send your questions related to the show and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. 
You can find the video version of the show on my YouTube page and full show notes will be posted in the podcast section of my website, karakuni.squarespace.com. For that, thank you, Amber Myers-Wells. There you'll also find info on my books, upcoming lectures, and you can subscribe to my newsletter. You can find me on Facebook at Karakuni Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Karakuni. See you next time on Afterlives with Karakuni.